3: Welcome to Criminalia, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio.
1: Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Fool me three times? Well... In 1915, Manhattan's Metropolitan Museum of Art acquired its first of three Etruscan statues, called the Old Warrior. The next year, they purchased a second piece. This one was called the Colossal Head, which experts decided during their evaluation was part of a 23-foot-tall warrior statue. In 1921, the museum purchased a third work, called the Big Warrior. The statues eventually became known as the Etruscan terracotta warriors. And considering what season we're in, this is no spoiler, they were total fakes. And for three decades, the Met displayed what they thought were prized pieces from the Etruscan civilization, which flourished during the Iron Age in what is now central Italy. Let's talk about those terracotta warriors and how it took decades to figure out their truth. Welcome to Criminalia. I'm Maria Tremarcki.
3: And I'm Holly Fry. In 1933, three large Etruscan warrior sculptures made of terracotta clay towered over visitors at a brand new exhibit at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. The Etruscan civilization, which existed before the Romans, was a superpower of the Western Mediterranean. But it's a civilization that scholars knew and know Little about. Though they did leave archaeological and genetic proof of their existence, the Etruscans left no written history, at least none that has been discovered. The sculptures, which had never been seen or heard of before, were believed to be from the 5th century BCE. Two warriors stood tall. The old warrior was six feet and the big warrior was eight feet in stature. The colossal head, complete with a big, curly beard, measured roughly four feet tall and looked out from under a war helmet.
1: The whole trouble began when renowned Met curator Gisela Richter, who had 40 years of experience on Greek and Roman antiquities, received a letter from a man named John Marshall, a veteran purchasing agent working in Italy for the museum. Marshall described to her a newly discovered life-size Etruscan terracotta warrior figure that had been found in an Italian field. Yep, we are talking about the old warrior here. His initial disclosure was quickly followed by another amazing find from that same field, a four-foot-tall terracotta warrior's head. He alluded to the fact there could still be more and greater treasure to be found at that location, and you can bet she was interested.
3: That first find, the old warrior, is believed to have been the first monumental sculpture produced by a man named Pio Riccardi and his associates. Riccardi, together with two of his cousins, Teodoro and Virgilio, and a colleague named Alfredo Fioravanti, were the forgers behind the piece. They actually forged a lot of things, and these three warriors that ended up at the Met were just one of their projects. This project, though, was not an easy one. At first, they ran into the simple question of, what the heck did an Etruscan warrior even look like? Without that knowledge, they decided to base the likeness of their old warrior on a known work believed to be of Etruscan origin, the reclining male figure on the Servitari sarcophagus, also known as the Sarcophagus of the Spouses, part of the Castellani collection at the British Museum.
1: The men researched and argued about their works as they created them. For instance, on the old warrior, the placement of the right arm was problematic. They thought the warrior should hold a shield, but adding a shield added too much weight for the arm to remain supported. So they took an easy way out. They just didn't include the arm.
3: For the style of the colossal head, they looked at what historian Pliny the Elder chronicled. Pliny was, as you may know, a bit of a lot of things. A naturalist, a philosopher, writer, and military commander of the early Roman Empire. His 37-volume work, Natural History, is considered one of the world's earliest encyclopedias. In Natural History, he describes how an Etruscan sculptor named Volca had been asked to create statues of the Roman gods Jupiter and Hercules, and that each of those statues stood as great as 25 feet high. So just to be clear here, yes, the Etruscan civilization predated the Roman Empire, but there was overlap. Modern historians believe the Etruscans were absorbed into the Roman civilization, and you can see they had influence on the Romans, including in their art. Both Riccardi and Fioravanti felt this second warrior should be large, but trying to fake a piece on that scale was beyond their capabilities. Instead, they decided to make a four-foot-tall head that implied a 25-foot-tall body. As their inspiration for the warrior's face, they used a two-dimensional figure that was painted on a small Greek vase. Ironically, that small terracotta vase was owned and displayed by the Met when the three forged warriors were exhibited there.
1: And when it came to creating the third warrior, they relied on a picture of a small bronze Greek statue found in a book from the Berlin Museum. One big problem they ran into here, though, was that the large scale of the piece proved difficult. Remember, the colossal warrior stands eight feet tall. With the
3: styles of the pieces chosen, there was then the matter of materials used. Keep in mind, before there were art forensics experts, you might visually notice stylistic elements were incorrect, but materials could pretty often be faked. The mixture for their models consisted of fine-grain clay sand and a grog. And in this case, we mean the crushed, fired clay that's added to raw clay, not the drink grog. Their grog was made from broken pieces of old pottery, which gave porosity to the mixture. That's important because it prevents your pottery from contracting or losing moisture during the clay firing process. Without some planning ahead, pottery, after it's fired, could contract as much as 33%. According to Time Magazine's coverage of the exposure of these forgeries, after each work was sculpted, the forgers broke each one into pieces before putting them through the firing process. And that was just because they didn't have kilns big enough to handle the large requirements.
1: As each was completed, Marshall bought the works on behalf of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, packed each fake warrior's fragments into crates, and sent those pieces to New York, where they were to be assembled. In regard to the old warrior, the first purchase, Gisela Richter messaged to Marshall that, the Etruscan terracotta has arrived safely and is at present being put together. I think it is quite exciting and will be one of the most dramatic things in the museum. How beautifully the painted patterns are preserved. Do you know anything about the provenance? Marshall replied succinctly, asking her to delay the announcement of the acquisition. So why would he do that? Marshall knew that announcing the Met's purchase of the old warrior could trigger his competitors to take a closer look into the Etruscan artifact. And he wanted to avoid gossip about it and its origins. No shady art dealer wants that. We're not saying Marshall was in on the whole thing, but history can't say he wasn't. And as to why Richter wasn't suspicious, we can't answer that question either.
3: Marshall's hints of things to come did come to pass. Marshall telegraphed Richter after seeing the colossal head, saying, quote, I can find nothing approaching it in importance very quickly after the acquisition of the Old Warrior on July 25, 1916, four crates containing 178 fragments of the colossal head arrived on the docks of New York City. This meant the shipment sailed during the First World War when German U-boats were really taking a toll on transatlantic merchantmen. Other dealers at the time wondered why Marshall would ship an allegedly irreplaceable treasure when there may not have been safe passage across the Atlantic Ocean. But he did it, and they did arrive just fine.
1: In her excitement about the arrival of the final piece, the big warrior, Richter, now remember, she was a renowned authority on ancient sculpture, wrote, quote, We have here a representation of a god of war, and undoubtedly the most imposing conception of such a deity which has survived from antiquity. But in reality, the Big Warrior was visibly oddly proportioned, with one long arm and a frame that sat on classically formed legs which was not stylistically accurate. It would later be determined some of the strangeness of the Big Warrior was actually a result of the forgers working in a small studio with a short ceiling, which is maybe not the best place to create an eight-foot-tall statue.
3: We're going to take a break for a word from our sponsor. And when we return, we'll talk about how in the world a veteran curator of ancient art could be duped as easily as Gisela Richter was.
0: Can I rant for a sec? Please. Please.
3: hey, everybody, it's Holly. Listen, I've been doing stuff on stage since I was a kid, which means that I have been doing my makeup since I was a kid. And I can turn out a look when I need to. But on my day to day, I really like to keep it a little more relaxed and low key. I don't have time for a full face most of the time. But that also means that Thrive Cosmetics can have me covered no matter what I'm doing, whether I'm doing something on stage, like I have an appearance or a live show or I'm just running to the grocery store. Something in their line is perfect. And what I really love and what's important to me is that they are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free. And to me, cruelty-free is very important in the cosmetics I use. I mentioned that I've been doing my makeup for a long time. I've gotten older (laughs) at that time. And one of the things that I've done to refresh my look is switch over to their brilliant eye brighteners and use something like a rose gold shade to really like go all around my eye and then just blend it out and get a daytime smoky look. It makes me look a little more youthful and more refreshed. And it's just easy as pie, and it means that I don't have to mess with a whole ton of products. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash criminalia. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com. Slash Criminalia for 10% off your first order. This episode is brought to you by Simply Safe. Listen, you listen to true crime podcasts. You know that the world can be dangerous and unpredictable and that there will unfortunately be people who want to hurt each other. And so it's kind of nice to get a little peace of mind by having a good home security system. Just take a few precautions and I recommend looking at Simply Safe Home Security. I've had my home broken into in the past and it was a terrible feeling, even though nothing that bad really happened. Aside from an intruder, I just really like knowing that I have a security setup that lets me check in on my pets when I'm not home. That is a huge peace of mind giver when I am out traveling. Simply Safe sent me a whole home security system, and I was really, really impressed by the variety of indoor and outdoor cameras they offer. And the whole thing is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com/criminalia. That's simplysafe s i m slash s a f e.com/criminalia. There's no safe like Simply Safe. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal,
0: so why not refresh your home with a little help from blinds.com?
1: Were these warriors gods or mortals? While Richter pondered such questions, she overlooked some red flags. Let's talk about why it took so long to out these fakes.
3: So how could someone like Gisela Richter not recognize these forgeries, or at least see some of the red flags? Historians suggest that it was likely all in her excitement about the find. She noted in her museum publications that ancient Latin writers had mentioned Etruscan sculptures, quote, in terms of wonder and admiration. In 1921, the year the big warrior arrived at the Met, Richter wrote in the museum's publication, Papers on the Etruscan Warriors, that the statues were, quote, under Greek influence but Italian in nature. And she wondered in her writing, quote, whom did our warrior represent? Was he a god or a mortal? The statue was unusual in both size and in aesthetic. In addition to the long arm and the classically styled legs we mentioned earlier, the shapes of the eyes and general features were off. But Richter believed the statues lived up to the descriptions of wonder that she had read about Etruscan art. Plus, they had been found and sent by a trusted intermediary of the museum, John Marshall. Thomas Hoving, who served as director of the Met from 1967 to 1977, wrote of Richter in his book, False Impressions, The Hunt for Big-Time Art Fakes, that, quote, one presumes she was taken in by the suave John Marshall and then allowed curatorial greed to take over. Pride, no doubt, had something to do with her eagerness to acquire these largest-ever-discovered Etruscan sculptures.
1: The three statues were mostly convincing to the eye, especially an untrained eye. They were weathered, they were cracked, the old warrior statue was missing both a thumb and an arm, and their striking black glazes seemed just like those on other ancient works. It wasn't like no one analyzed these warriors, though. A noted ceramics expert at the time the works were acquired, Charles Binns, evaluated each piece. Binns concluded that the glaze that covered them was the very same black glaze you'd find on ancient Greek pottery. This glazing technique involved the work to be covered in a clay slip that turned a glossy black during the firing process. Interestingly, regarding his analysis, the process for making the glaze was lost during the Roman Empire and had not been rediscovered until 1942, roughly 20 years after the Met acquired their final warrior. How could they, then, be modern forgeries the museum considered if no one at the time knew how to make such a glaze? It factored into their conclusion that the sculptures were authentic.
3: Not everyone, though, was celebrating this Etruscan art discovery. In 1933, the same year the Three Warriors went on display, a bulletin published by the Met stated that the statues had been, quote, compared with vigor. But there were doubters. It was in 1936 when art dealer Pietro Tozzi wrote to Richter saying that he had heard gossip around Rome that the Etruscan warriors in her museum's possession were not genuine. And to back up his claim, he shared names of the likely forgers behind them, Riccardi and Fioravanti. Marshall, who had acquired them, was the obvious choice to turn to about this matter, but he had passed away in 1928. Instead, Richter penned a note to a woman named Annie Revere, who had been Marshall's personal assistant and general right-hand woman for years, saying, quote, I don't propose to pay any attention to it except to ask you to find out who this Fioravanti is and what kind of things he makes. So Revere looked into it, and she found that he was a man who did a lot of things. He had been at times a tailor, a dealer in old furniture, and that, quote, He has been for many years, and still was, a taxi driver in Rome. But Totsi's information was good. Fioravanti also dabbled in forgery. Richter, for unknown reasons, never followed up on this information.
1: A few months after Richter and Bin's 1937 publication, entitled Etruscan Terracotta Warriors in the MMA, was published, an Italian archaeologist named Massimo Palatino, based in Rome, wrote an article for Archaeologica Classica in which he, quote, dismissed all three sculptors in a masterly manner as forgeries.
3: With doubts increasing, Richter attempted again to find out more about the source of the terracottas. And this time, Amadeo Riccardi, a son or perhaps a brother of one of the forgers, was tracked down in Rome and asked to assist the museum in its authenticity investigation but when asked about any specific details, he claimed he, quote, could not remember anything definite. He did, however, reportedly draw a map of a place that he called Boca Porca, the alleged location where the terracottas were uncovered. But he strongly recommended against traveling there, stressing, quote, the difficulties, the roads were bad, the locality could not be reached by a car. Or... Looking at it another way, since Boca Porca was a fake place he made up, it couldn't be reached at all. He told Richter that the person who discovered the site was a man named Campanella, but that he had died several years earlier. Campanella, however, like Boca Porca, was not real. Richter insisted Amadeo take her to, quote, the exact spot where he was told the figures were found. But unfortunately for her, Amadeo told her that a fountain had been built on the site. Amadeo and Richter were in contact for a while, but historians believe that he was likely diverting her from the truth. Met curator Dietrich von Boatmer later stated that much, if not all, of Amadeo's act was a charade, and that also, quote, with attacks of influenza, the spring plowing, and the fields under cultivation, he was not able to help.
1: We're going to take a break for a word from our sponsor. When we're back, we're going to meet a man named Harold Parsons, who was critical in exposing the truth behind the forgeries. (sighs)
0: Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com?
2: Welcome back
3: to Criminalia. Okay, here's where it all unravels. Let's talk about gossip, testing, and how three statues were sent to the basement of the Met.
1: A man named Harold Woodbury Parsons was an art historian who purchased antiquities for American museums in the mid-20th century. And Parsons expressed reservations about the warriors as far back as the early 1940s. During the 1950s, several other scholars challenged the authenticity as well, but it was Parsons who dug in and began his own investigation in 1959. After studying science at Harvard University, Parsons turned to art and spent most of his life buying European art from museums in the United States. When it came to the three pieces at the Met, he was quoted saying, I was always suspicious of them stylistically. I sensed something wrong. While in retirement in Rome, he began talking to art dealers around the city, and has been quoted saying pretty much what we similarly heard from John Marshall and Pietro Tazzi years earlier, there are no secrets in Rome, it's the most gossipy city in the world. In that gossip, he recalled in an interview with Time magazine that he kept hearing one name again and again, Alfredo Fioravanti. Fioravanti, he discovered, was a repairman who specialized in antiques and jewelry. Curious about him, Parsons got to know him.
3: And that's really all it took. Eventually, during what he thought was their blossoming friendship, Fioravanti shared the story of the Etruscan warrior forgery with Parsons. He spoke about how he'd met Riccardi, who specialized in repairing ancient pottery for Italian antique dealers. Fioravanti, who was a tailor at the time the two met, switched careers to work in Riccardi's shop. One day at work, the men caught an idea. If they could repair ancient works of art, what was stopping them from creating fake works of art? And their new career took
1: off. In January of 1961, Parsons, believing he had enough information on the scam, took the confessed forger to the United States consulate in Rome, where Fioravanti then made a signed confession about the forgeries. Next, Parsons sent a letter to officials at the Met. The Met actually, it turns out, wasn't really all that surprised to hear this bad news. And that's because its own ceramics expert, Joseph Noble, had recently tested the sculptures by replicating methods that the ancient Etruscans would have used for making pottery. And he found that things didn't really add up. But keep his name in your pocket, because we're going to talk about his discoveries in just a minute.
3: On January 12, 1961, Met Museum director James Rorimer received Parsons' correspondence from Rome, together with the translation of the deposition that had been signed by Alfredo Fioravanti before the American consul in Rome one week prior. Rorimer immediately sent museum curator von Bodmer to Rome. There, on behalf of the Met, he confronted Fioravanti in Harold Parsons' apartment. Von Bodmer, according to a report of the meeting published in Time magazine at the time, produced a plaster cast of the single hand of the old warrior, that hand that had a thumb missing. Fioravanti, in turn, produced a thumb made of the same baked material as the sculptures, a piece that he said he had kept for years. And you can guess what happened next. That thumb and hand fit together perfectly. He went on to state that he had mixed the coloring agents used on the statues, and he also told the men that while the dealer got at least $40,000 for the sale of the old warrior, he personally only saw a few hundred. Totally not bitter about it.
1: Having learned that Fioravanti and the Ricardis were the forgers of the Etruscan warriors, Met officials then looked for the official seller of the art. An Italian art dealer named Pietro Stettner had sold, at the very least, the old warrior and the colossal head to John Marshall. Looking into him and the nature of his dealings, Richter wrote, quote, I learned Stetner was a high official in the post office and a collector, not a forger. So that is that. But Richter hadn't really cracked the case here. Former Met Museum director Thomas Hoving described Stettner in one word as, quote, crooked. And according to von Botmer's report, Marshall had purchased more than a dozen objects from Stettner between 1914 and 1920. Interesting how those years line up with the Etruscan statues. One of these objects was a life-size terracotta statue of a woman, which was bought in 1916 and then discovered to be a fake in 1927. To be clear here, that was not a statue purchased by the Met, though the timeline is in line with the statues they did buy at that time. Said von Botmer, quote, the recognition that an acquisition from a dealer is a forgery often leads to a re-examination of other objects from the same source, all in an attempt to see how long the counterfeit trail was and where it led. But that did not happen here. No one exposed that Stettner had sold seven terracotta works in 1914 alone. Hoving suggests in his book that, in his position, Marshall shouldn't have been fooled by these forgeries, and that his purchases suggest he may have been complicit. What we know for sure is that at least five of the 15 objects Marshall bought from Stettner over a short span of years were fakes. So there's that question again. Did he know? The jury's still out.
3: On Valentine's Day of 1961, 28 years after they opened their Etruscan Warrior Gallery, the Met issued a press release about their prized pieces. In it, they admitted that as a result of a recently completed series of modern scientific and technical analyses, they had learned the three allegedly Etruscan terracotta statues were of doubtful authenticity. Using new testing methods not available a few decades prior, they now had convincing proof that the materials used to create these statues were not available or in use in ancient times. According to New York Times coverage about the forged warriors, the Met had been, quote, uneasy for years about the origin of the large sculptures. Time magazine reported that for the first time in its history, quote, the Met had to announce that it was housing a fake.
1: Museum director Rorimer noted that these studies, quote, "...provided the first technical evidence of their having been made in modern times," and that this evidence was completely corroborated on January 5, 1961, when Alfredo Fioravanti signed a sworn statement that he had helped make the terracottas. What Rorimer and other representatives for the Met didn't say was that the discovery followed years of bungled investigation by the museum in an attempt to determine whether or not the works were genuine, and that the warriors, if anyone had recognized just a few red flags, could have been spotted as fakes so much earlier.
3: So those red flags, first, they were in great condition for pieces of broken terracotta that had been allegedly dug up from who knows how many years in the ground. In fact, earlier in the episode, we mentioned that Richter hadn't questioned their amazing condition. Instead, she exclaimed that they were, quote, still resplendent in their original colors when describing them in that same 1937 museum publication, where she also wondered if they represented deities. And additionally, when the pieces were assembled, each sculpture had only a single vent hole, which should have been another red flag. So if you're wondering what the problem is here, von Bodmer explained in a 1961 museum report that, quote, although each of the warriors had obviously been made in one piece, but it would have been technically impossible to fire them whole. There had been no adequate provision for the circulation of air necessary during the drying and firing of the clay, which in ancient terracottas had been assured by a proper disposition of vent holes. If you were firing just fragments of a clay sculpture you'd made and broken apart, though, making sure there was vent holes for them wouldn't have really been an issue.
1: One giant red flag came in 1956 from Joseph Noble, who we mentioned just a moment ago. Noble was hired that year by Rorimer as the museum's operating administrator, a position he held until 1967. Noble also served as chairman of the administrative committee and vice director of administration, leaving the Met in 1970 to become director of the Museum of the City of New York. While at the Met, though, he was instrumental in exposing the fake Etruscan statues. In fact, he was the first official at the museum to really... Truly look at them.
3: In an article published in the New York Times in nineteen seventy, nine years after the forgery was finally exposed by Parsons, Noble explained how he had discovered the Etruscan warriors were forgeries, stating, quote, One day I walked around to the derriere of one of the warriors, and took a penknife, and, yes, took off a piece about the size of a pin. Noble, who was also an antiquities collector and self-trained ceramic archaeologist, recognized flaws in the statues. But after chemical analysis and testing, he also discovered that what Benz had thought was ancient Greek black glaze was not so ancient. It contained a modern coloring agent called manganese dioxide. His conclusion was that the three statues had likely been created between 1914 and 1918.
1: Noble summarized the results of his close inspection of the warriors, stating, quote, certain fractured areas do not properly join. Where this would have been obvious, the edges of the break have been chipped away to hide the telltale flaws. This suggested that the figures had warped and cracked in drying and probably were already in fragments before firing. That sounds a lot like von Botmer's assessment. An interesting aside on Noble. Noble was a known forger, and he was open about doing so. Through his research of Egyptian and Greek ceramics and the materials they were made with, he became skilled in techniques used in making ancient art. And he turned that knowledge into sort of a hobby, creating replicas on a kiln at his home. He didn't scam anyone into buying them, though. He called it his research, and he went on to publish a book called The Techniques of Painted Attic Pottery.
3: Rorimer, in his final observation on the whole situation, before his sudden death in 1966, said, quote, "...the facts at hand should bring to a close what, alas, is not an isolated chapter in the history of collecting." And according to the New York Times in 1962, after the sculptures were outed as inauthentic, the Met moved them to the basement with restricted viewing for scholars. Okay, are you ready for a bogus
1: bevy? I am always ready for a bogus bevy.
3: This one is so funny that it made me laugh very hard when I took the first sip. Because I made both of the drinks to make sure they looked right. And then it was hilarious to look at one while drinking the other. That is actually probably a little surreal. (laughs) This is a super easy drink to make. It consists of... A half an ounce of banana liqueur, an ounce of a spiced rum, so you want a brown rum here, and then an ounce and a half of cranberry juice. And you're gonna stir that together in a glass and then give it like a little orange coin as a a garnish.
1: Because it looks exactly like a Negroni. <laughs> But it's banana. <laughs> like, right, like, which is hilarious to me. Which is banana. Sorry, I couldn't help it.
3: <laughs> I wanted to try to replicate a drink that is very Italian, which there's there are books written about the history of the Negroni. I have talked about it on other shows. And the Negroni is one of those infamous cocktails that is often referred to as an acquired taste because the initial sip is a lot. It's very bitter.
1: Yeah. Uh, Campari. Campari
3: is a very bitter orange liqueur. It also has sweet vermouth in it and gin. So it's a heavy hitter in terms of alcohol content and it's bitey. But then you take a second or third sip and you start to notice all of the different subtleties right. of it. But it is an acquired taste.
1: Campari in general seems to be on a lot of people's lists. So, yeah. right.
3: So if you are looking at a drink that you think is going to be. A Negroni, and it tastes like bananas. It's just funny. It's
1: funny. It is
3: funny. <laughs> That's a delicious drink. Although I will say, really, you're not going to fool anyone because even with only half an ounce, you can smell the banana coming as you're bringing it up to your lips. But it is so yummy. It tastes like a tropical Caribbean getaway.
1: It, when <laughs> you list off the ingredients, not at all. It sounds like a lovely hot weather, refreshing, and you know. When you bring that up thinking it's a Negroni and you get that smell of banana, you're like, something has gone wrong.
3: (laughs) And I also, for no reason other than I just wanted to see if I could, I wanted to make a fake that you built in the same way. Just like a Negroni you normally build in the glass and stir it to cool all of the elements. You do the exact same thing with what I'm calling the Boca Porca because <laughs> I made it up.
1: Oh, it's not real. It, it is like, now. Oh
3: and yeah, you just stir it in the glass. It's three ingredients. I initially tried to make it the same measures of an ounce and an ounce and an ounce. And it didn't get red enough. We had to throttle back the banana to throttle in a little more cranberry to get it that red color. And it's pretty close. I would say it's within a shade or two of the Negroni I made. Now, in your experience, if you make this at home, some of that's going to be variable, right? Not every spiced rum is quite the same shade of brown. Not every cranberry juice is quite the same shade of red. So if you are trying to make one just for fun and match the colors exactly, you might need to tweak the proportions a little bit more. But it looks, if I walked into a bar and someone were drinking it and I didn't have the scent of it, I would be like, oh, that person is drinking a Necronium.
1: Especially like the Ah! lights are a little dim. It might look, you know, doesn't matter how red it is.
3: Although I did make it in very bright light so I could... For you, yes. I wanted to make sure it was really close. And that's the Boca Porca, which made me laugh so hard because there's something so wonderfully absurd about banana (laughs) flavor when you think that you're getting... Kampari. Kampari. It's just funny. It's just funny. The way to make this as a mocktail is super easy. I almost skipped that entirely. You will just use a little banana syrup there. Easy peasy. And then in lieu of spiced rum, you can do a tea, a dark tea. And I would, if you want to make it yummy, I would add some spices of your own to that tea. So make like your favorite black tea, like whether you like an Earl Grey or an English breakfast or whatever. And then I would add a little cardamom, maybe a little cinnamon, maybe a little nutmeg and just shake it up and you can double strain it if you don't want any debris in there. But then
1: it's still like, mm. I bet a little nutmeg would be great in that mocktail.
3: Uh, Nutmeg is great in cocktails. I love it. You can also mess around with bitters, spice it up the way you like, but it's still a Boca Porca. That's what's important. It is still... (laughs) We'll see if I manage the same level of absurdity next week. I hope you will join us to find out. We'll have another forgery story and another cocktail that mocks another drink.